Hello, and welcome to Molding Handy with Handguns. Uh, kind of doing <laughs> episodes in both banks this time. Uh, handy with Handguns, folks. Hey, I haven't seen you in a long time. I probably won't see you for a long time after this. Uh, molding Masculinity, folks. Hi, we're back after also a long time. You will see more of us after this. Uh, I've been moving and things, and things have been crazy, and things will continue to be crazy for a few weeks, but... We will be back on a regular schedule soon. I'm putting together a little podcasting studio. Things are happening, and we'll do more podcasting. Me and Philip will. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but we had a, you know, a obviously, um, if you're listening to this at around the time it, it comes out, um, recently there was a... Um, another mass shooting at a school. And so um, obviously that whole discourse cycle has come to the forefront again. Uh, and all the same things are being said as are always said here and probably the same amount will get done. Uh, but perhaps I'm being pessimistic. Um, I mean, if you were listening to this when not when this episode was produced, you'll probably be listening to it right after a school shooting will have happened and we'll be having all of this again. Yeah, but, um, you know, so this is kind of why it's a crossover. So to the handy with handguns crowd. Hi, I'm Philip. I'm Tommy's co-host on Molding Masculinity. Uh, and uh, we over there, we talk about... Uh, men's issues from a perspective um that isn't heavily informed by uh right-wing cable news <laughs> um <laughs> but um in our own sort of relationship and and struggles in that area but um uh good to meet the handy with handguns folks uh hopefully you find this discussion compelling so we'll have a mixture of firearms type discussions but also a mixture of like you know culture of masculinity around firearms and um you know how that relates to both what's happened the tragedy that's happened recently and um uh, all of the other ones that have happened and will happen yeah and just in general also like the way that we behave and act and attitudes that we tend toward when it comes to guns and violence and and that sort of thing 100 percent, and i mean like the actions that we inflict upon each other that causes um a lot of the environments that allow these shooters to i i now okay well i actually i want to preface right before we head into everything i am going to talk i will we are going to talk a lot about mental health issues we're going to talk a lot about um trauma and bullying and uh you know uh all of this all of that is to say that first of all and most foremost people are um responsible for their own actions and have their uh you know it, the um of course the word just goes right out of my my mind uh um your responsibility for your own actions the word being starts with an a accountable the accountability, accountability yeah. Yeah, the accountability for this lands on the shooter's shoulders. I hate the way that we often use all of the discussions around this to stamp out the accountability of the shooter. Of, oh, he was bullied, so it wasn't his fault. No, it was his fucking fault. Like, 
you know, all of these things can exist and be something that we have to address as a society, while also the person who does the thing being 100% accountable for what they did. Yeah, um, and, like, let's be clear, like, well, that's a factor and it is important, like, thousands if not hundreds of thousands if not millions of people experience bullying constantly every day and they don't go murder children so like yeah. <laughs> that's not a complete picture no and we won't be engaging in apologia for the shooter um at all yes yeah and i mean in uh yeah 100 percent. and then also the other element is this is 100 percent a masculinity element and i think this is something that almost every end of discussion on this and like so both fire like the reason i wanted to make a firearms podcast was because i felt like there wasn't enough discourse about firearms that was actually conclusive and hit a number of elements in that discussion i like talking about masculinity because there's a bunch of stuff we just don't talk about one of the things we just don't talk about every single time one of these shootings happens is how every single one of these shooters, every single time, always comprehensively is a man. It's, it's always men who do this. Like, we can talk about, is it, you know, and, and it's interesting to me how the media will dive down, like, the class background of these shooters, the racial background of shooters, the, uh, you know, what was their home life like? What was their, like, their relationship with their parents? What was their relationship with their students? Without ever discussing the fact that they're men, they're all men, and 50% of the population isn't men. Yeah, so an immediate thing that I'm popping up and looking at this, so I lo I'm looking at uh, Statista, which, you know, take it or leave it as how great of a, a source that is, but uh, number of mass shootings in the United States between 1982 and May 2022. Now, one thing I always want to say with looking at analyses of mass shootings is I think there's a lot that gets left out and a lot that gets overly included in mass shootings. Specifically, I think there's a lot of things that are left out that are um, shootings that happen in... Uh, black and brown communities and and you know it gets like labeled as gang shootings that it's it's lesser majoring that over what are considered as mass shootings i think there's a lot to unpack there racially yeah but anyways to my point here number of mass shootings in the united states between 1982 and may of 2022 by shooters gender 123 committed by males three committed by females two committed by males and females and then none that are unknown or not released so that's 123 versus three <laughs> yeah and looking at um some numbers from the violence project um that uh group that tracks mass shooting data in the u.s uh they go back to 1966 and still 98 percent of the mass shootings that they have tracked committed by men that's pretty big <laughs> um it's like I think I also am deeply uncomfortable with how readily I feel like most everyone kind of glosses over that. Like, oh, well, of course they're all men. Like, well, hold on. <laughs> That's actually really, really weird. Like, it's a very telling statement. Violent crime is weighted towards men. That's true. That's expected. But this is way more weighted towards men. Like, you could look at you know, homicides, uh, sexual assaults, all this stuff, and none of them are as high a percentage of male to female perpetrators as these mass shootings are. So, like, I there's a real conversation to have here about, like, what is making it where 
men in general as a group end up in these places obviously it's very obviously like 123 for example instances over you know 30-ish years is not a lot it's certainly not like oh man all men struggle just like they're on the precipice of becoming mass shooters like it that's not what i'm trying to get at but what i am getting at is like if it were merely um just u.s gun culture which is often where the discourse is at like oh we have so many guns in the united states we need gun control no it's a mental illness thing we need mental illness thing which is often often just a red herring but like like there's a real element here it's like it can't be just gun culture because if it was just gun culture you'd see a lot more women doing this too there's plenty of women in gun culture it's male dominated i'm sure i haven't looked at the numbers but i would be shocked to find out it was even but like this is something else <laughs> this is not like um this is not the, the thing you can just like hand wave over it's like yeah of course men do this kind of stuff like it's not it's way beyond what you'd even expect statistically um even given the statistical tendency for men to be more prone to violent crime and so like you know looking at some very quick data on gun owners i'm kind of struggling right now and i'm sure little little looking could un uh unpack it through pew research i'm not finding immediate data on gun ownership men versus women my own knowledge in the firearm community is that i would say that it's about a maybe a you know a, a 70 40 split but that's not math. That's not how that works. A 60-40 split, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Maybe a 70-30 split. Uh, I will say I think it's very telling that Pew does have a bunch of, you know, ev uh, a bunch of data discussing uh, how young uh, uh, women have became gun owners versus how young men became gun owners, and there's very close data. It's looking at, like, uh, uh, men reporting uh, growing up with guns about 27% of the time, while women reporting it about 9% of the time, you know, Going shooting or going to a gun range, thirteen versus seven. Uh, using airsoft guns or paintball, forty-two versus ten. Like those are for the most part fairly similar numbers. So I think just having those kind of breakdowns tells you that that the, the change, the, the difference is far greater than ninety-eight versus two. Um, that being said, uh, I I think something that's very telling in all of this, and one of the things that I really want to get down to, and I want to talk about some firearm regulation stuff in this episode too, um, was like, but f first and foremost, uh, the the violence element of this I think is incredibly important that I don't think we unpack enough, and I think is something that is as wildly apparent to the rest of the world as America's firearm, firearm ownership thing is. Uh, I really think these are things that go hand in hand and are intertwined, and that is violence culture among men in the United States. Something you said very early on right there is this kind of general assumption of, well, of course men are the ones engaged in this. It's a violent act. Violence is just generally associated with men in so many elements of our culture. Um, and a thing that's like, right now, like I've been... Uh, so like right now I'm reading through The Expanse. I think The Expanse is an incredible film, or, uh, film uh, book series. I think it's an incredible series of novels. It's a wonderful TV series. I like it. It's one of my favorite science fiction things right now. But it just kind of occurred to me while I was reading through the, uh, the there's, there's a new book that's like a series of short stories in the universe. And it occurred to me while reading through this how 
wildly and like wildly out of touch violent it is despite it not being like you know it's not specifically a war book it's not about wars it's about kind of a large scale discussion of the human uh you know of, of humanity and yet every single character is constantly carrying a gun and constantly like at the edge of becoming in a gunfight with somebody else around them and this is something you see through virtually any form of media that is directed at or intended for the consumption of men is that every single character in that media will be constantly at the edge of possibility of being in a gunfight and this i think presents itself in several ways one of these i experienced when i was in media school and uh we were you know when we all kind of started making short films for the first time being repeatedly told by instructors uh this kind of a frustration that they had that men specifically in the class men were often incapable of coming up with conflict for short films that didn't involve violence and that yes conflict can be non-violent you can have things or even beyond conflict you can just have plots that aren't about everybody being strapped up and about to have a fight or having a fight and even with a ton of guidance you know a massive percentage of all of the films that were ever made in our classes were all extremely violent and uh, there was a bunch of firearms and otherwise weapons used in these mo in these short films uh myself every short film i've produced uh with the exclusion of one had some form of use of violence in the movie um as male culture in america were like almost incapable of comprehending the idea of fictional material that doesn't include violence uh the number of times i have recommended uh elements of media to male friends of mine and then they've asked me like outright are there any cool sword fights or gun scenes in it and i'm like no it, it's it's bridgerton it's not really about that and they're like ah it's not my thing then like that's really fucking weird and we don't talk about it like the inability to consume something unless we're seeing violence in it is a problem and not normal or natural um and i say this talking to myself i am just as equally bad at the, about this but i think this kind of an element does i'm not saying that the violence in media is cause school shooters but i am saying that the violence in our media our, our inability to consume anything that isn't violence as men is indicative of a problem and it isn't universal like most men i've known from like when i've traveled the world and i've been involved with a ton of international students this was a very specifically american thing and it's something that americans have a stereotype for around the world is that american men are violent as fuck yeah, for sure. And I have noted this in uh, a pet hobby of mine. Um, regular listeners of Molding Masculinity will uh, know already that um, I'm very much into Dungeons and Dragons, which, needless to say, has a ton of rules about violence, um, like how to pretend to go on a, you know, combat eats up a massive portion of the book of how to do it like uh how to execute the game rules for uh, movement and attacks and actions and all that stuff 
Um, and I, you know, I enjoy the the board game aspect of the thing. But one thing that I have I have noticed is something that was very invisible to me for a long time. I played this hobby now for uh, you know approaching twenty years, and it wasn't until like the past like few like maybe four years that um you know i got introduced to the idea of people having characters in the indie campaign that would have romantic feelings for each other and my initial reaction to this is like oh that's kind of weird you know i saw it in um a live play show a famous one anyone's familiar with dnd probably has heard of critical role and some of the characters there had romances and initially it was kind of like oh like it was a bit of a surprise to me and it wasn't until like uh i heard one of the people talking on uh a podcast of some kind that they said you know it's kind of funny to me that you know we play that like people get all um uncomfortable about romance in dungeons and dragons like we're all willing to go and like drive swords through a person's chest and like pull it out and have their intestines spill on the ground and you know like do these like horrendously violent things uh and they're like yeah that's awesome yeah i blow up like 20 people with a giant ball of fire and they instantly like incinerate and you know like that's a horrific way to die like and like the response to that is like yeah cool like i'm so cool and powerful and awesome but it's like um i think i might like you uh i want to kiss you it's like ooh, gross weird and like it just screams like uh like a, a lack of emotional availability because like the one thing that you need more than anything to like do violence more easily is be disconnected from your emotional self <laughs> and like that was like that was like a big aha moment for me of like oh i'm playing this game wrong <laughs> um like that's not good that's not a good thing to have where like kissing and love is scary and weird and strange and awkward and and you know in some cases cringe or whatever like it's um but like blowing people up with a fireball is cool uh and that was like a big like moment for me of like oh you know like seeing how like a manifestation of this thing that you're talking about of like like violence is just like accepted as like a baseline thing like there's gonna be violence in uh particularly things that can't cater to males in particular so much so that like um it's almost weird to see like it's it's almost like the presence of violent signals that it's male and or the lack of violent signals that it's female um 100 percent. and i yeah yeah no i mean and it's yeah, I think this is one of those things that also, like, it begins with how we censor kids or censor the material that we send to kids. Um, you know, I remember like just one upfront uh, 
example was that when I was a kid, I remember watching Terminator with my dad and he covered my eyes during the sex scene in Terminator, but he didn't cover my eyes during any of the other uh, scenes in Terminator. We have this thing where we consider uh, sex, sex, uh, nudity, and even just, you know, just, you know, suggestive material, uh, just making a dirty joke to be completely off the table in, su- in a widely out of space range, much more widely out of space range than violence is. Violence will get you maybe a PG-13 rating. Uh, casually mentioning that sex exists might get you a rated R rating. Um, it, and it's that kind of way we framework that even when kids are super young and the way we framework it to boys uh, and again, so, you know, part of this kind of genderization of with, with kids is I've seen it happen before where boys will be playing and having a very like, it's not about violence and conflict play and older men, uh, father figures injecting that into it. Oh, so who's the good guys and the bad guys? Oh, is this the good guy? Oh, is he going to beat up the bad guy? Like, that, that was what was happening there. You didn't need to make it that. Like, um... Well, if we don't do that, then we're not teaching kids the difference between good and bad. Well, you can teach the difference between good and bad without the difference between good and bad being violence. And and this is coming from somebody who is 100% okay with punching Nazis. But it doesn't mean that I think we should teach everyone that the solution to all problems is punching. Right. right. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I when it comes to that dynamic in particular, like when it comes to my sons... I've very intentionally pushed back on this like good guy, bad guy dynamic. I'll be like, uh, at least at the very minimum, remind them like good guys and bad guys are things that exist in stories. They are lines that are drawn in the sand and they're partially because you're looking at the story from a particular character's perspective. Now, like obviously if a person is, I'm going to take over the world and kill everyone, like, that's a bad person and you should stop them from doing that because that thing is bad but like people aren't bad or good people are not born with like some label on them about you know where they are in the good camp or the bad camp and like there aren't good guys and bad guys in real life and it's much more complicated even like i know this is like the cliche thing done to death but like you know like even hitler did paintings like that people hate that example and they cringe at it and it's a little bit cliche at this point but i think part of the reason for that is like it's it makes it harder to imagine him as the bad guy that we need to kill and like look i think we needed to kill hitler like i agree (laughs) with that uh honestly the best thing hitler did was kill hitler (laughs) but like it's not it's not a good model. There's a difference between rec- being able to recognize that like sometimes people are in a state where the only solution you have left in dealing with them in the way that they're affecting the world is violence, right? If someone's attacking you, you get to defend yourself. If someone is doing a Holocaust, you get to try to stop them. Like you, violence, it has its place, but it isn't a good model to go into the world trying to divide it up into the good guys camp and the bad guys camp 
And if you do that, you're going to come away with some frankly childish takeaways. Mm-hmm. And the worst part about that is, is exactly what you've pointed out, which is that like the people that go around with that model, once they've established it, they're like, okay, well now that I have who the good guys are and the bad guys are, and you see this a lot in, uh, in like across political things and it's explaining it explains a lot of certain phenomenon and what you're saying about people and their violent tendencies when it comes to political camps but like uh once people have made that division between good guys and bad guys well that's when once you've done that the next step from there is okay now the good guys are supposed to beat the bad guys and i don't just mean like defeat them when literally beat them like violently get rid of them violently stop them you know whatever the case that is the next step of that model and that's fine when we're talking about fascists and anti-fascists it's a very different thing when we're talking about democrats and republicans it's a very different thing when we're talking about you know um any two camps that disagree on thing and i and i have strong opinions about like the you know the people who disagree with me side on politics but like it shouldn't be my model to go around being like okay my job as someone who is like a leftist and wants to like you know see a more equitable distribution of wealth is to like kill anyone that's like pro-capitalism like that is horrendous that would make me a mass murderer like Mm -hmm. That can't be the model that you go about it. I do think that the those people need to be defeated in some way, but like not by killing them all. Yeah, and and especially when you boil this down into smaller things, it becomes uh, an explanation for abuse. A lot of that is the macrocosm of it, right? It's like you know, anti-fascist versus fascist, Republican versus Democrat, uh, pro this versus anti this. That's the micro, like the micro, or the that's the macro of it. But the micro of it also, I think, is very important in how it manifests into uh, abuse. Um, a lot of what you hear is the excuse for how men treat various people's people in their lives as well. But they did this to them. Uh, they treated him like this. They did this to them. They uh, denied him this, denied him that. So the fact that he punched them. That made sense, you know. Uh, the fact that he, uh, well, you know, that guy was uh, calling. Uh, the guy was calling his wife a name, so of course he went up and smacked him. Which I mean, I have mixed feelings about that. Like, you know, generalize that uh, that example. Don't make it specific. Um, you know, you know, it, it's. Uh, but also, like, just I don't know. A lot of things. It becomes this thing that is the kind of underlayer of explanation for how men act violent in their day-to-day lives. Uh, boiling it down even to a point of where, like, you know, it, it's a natural reaction to me through most of my life for if I'm working on a lawnmower and something doesn't work right, and I don't know why it doesn't work right, it's a natural reaction and an acceptable reaction to kick it, to hit it, to throw a screwdriver at it, throw a hammer at it, like, do something violent to it. Um, that, that, like, you know, then it's, and I mean, and of course, an element of these things is, you know, it's just bound to happen. 
uh, in that kind of a non-abusive context. That's a very, you know, that's me versus a machine. But when it's person versus person, it very rarely is an excusable situation. It's the fabric, a lot of the fabric of how abuse happens. And I'll even argue that when it happens against machines, it's kind of a stepping stone for us to commit abuse and violence against people in our lives uh, who don't react to things the way we expect them to react to things in the same way that the the machine isn't reacting to me the way I want it to react to me. Um, it, it, that is all kind of a fabric and step, like a ladder to abuse, to violence, um, to all to these kind of mass shooting things. So something, again, another thing that we see constantly with these mass shooters is that they have a history of domestic abuse. They do this at home to people on an individual common, like when I say common, I mean, you know, more common than mass shooting, uh, abusive level. Uh, um they do bad shit at home and then it blows up into this massive thing. Um, this stuff is all tied together and I think it's important to talk about it. Yeah. Well, and when it comes to mass shootings, you know, like obviously like the things that really catapult it into the discourse have been school shootings in particular, which um now here's where I have to tread carefully because and why we started with the um, the disclaimer right at the beginning because it's very easy to take what I'm going to say, which is a systemic analysis, and see it as excusing the behavior of shooters, and it absolutely isn't that. Okay, these people should not be doing the things that they're doing. They are responsible for it. All of that as background a lot of the school shootings are the outcome of a lot uh, a unaddressed systemic problem with bullying and abuse of people who do not match the typical hegemonic idea of how people should be um and while what I'm not saying is that like it bullying people causes them to become shooters, what I am saying is that people don't become shooter the mass shooters as a function of their genetics. These people have a lot of things going wrong. Bullying is one of them. And if that thing wasn't there, maybe they would never get tipped over the edge. Yeah, the like... oh, go ahead. I mean, yeah, I'm just, you know, very, very, very rarely, if ever, do you see mass shooters or specifically school shooters who are people with happy, complete, meaningful, uh, supported lives where they had all of the support structures that they needed, the health care that they needed, the mental health care that they needed, the this, the that, all of the things in place that society should provide for people. Uh, the community, the, I mean, like the, the school shooter for this instance, he posted about every single step along the way. He posted about it on Facebook. He posted like hours beforehand, I'm going to shoot my grandma. Then he shot his grandma and then he posted about it on Facebook. I shot my grandma. If he would have, I'm not blaming the community around him for this, but I'm saying it's evidence of the fact that there was no community around this individual that, you know, 
if either of us was to, what, no, I'm not going to use that. Uh, I'm not going to use a hypothetical. Uh, I'm going to use a real life. You know, I've had friends of mine who went through a mental health crisis, and we all learned about it when they posted something on social media that was real sketch. And so we showed up at their house. We, you know, d did uh, wellness checks as a group, as a community. We're like, hey, what's going on? Something's not right here. And we took a whole series of steps. If you have social safety nets, structures, communities, things built up around folks, this doesn't take place. This is one of the reasons it doesn't happen in other countries. Um, that's part of the problem here. Yeah, for sure. It's it's very much a failure, a, a, a multiple systemic failure across healthcare, culture, um, individual, sometimes, uh, you know, acceptance that results in these things that any one of which having not failed may have prevented that thing. And it's, now we're talking butterfly effect type stuff, it can be really hard, you know, obviously we can't go back and prove that exactly if this kid was bullied like three less times, so, you know, like whatever, like we're not trying to make that kind of analysis. The point is that like systemically these failures are everywhere and they don't just hurt mass shooters. Like Mass shooters are what you get when all of these things focus on one person. And importantly, when at the, the very last failure in that step is a cultural one, the man, the kid that's a male, like comes to a point at which he's been failed at every step in the way in his life. And he in the desperate attempt to reach out to something to take control of, to, to, to do something, what's the only option that we've ever left? Desperate men, violence. Or at least All the only show... option we've taught them. <laughs> yeah, right. No, that's what I mean. Like the only option that we've taught them is violence. I'll show them, I'll take my revenge. Go big or go home. You know, like these kind of things. And it's almost like, yeah, that's what you're going to get. You put all these systemic failures in place. You make it where these things fail regularly all the time. And you, population mechanics asserts itself. You got 300 million people. You got, you know, even a 2% failure rate across, you know, 10 different systems that are all supposed to provide supports for people. And if all of them fail on one person, what you're going to get is a mass shooter. Uh and, you know, that doesn't, again, excuse, like, people shouldn't do this kind of thing. Uh, it's not an excuse for the behavior. It doesn't make what the person did okay. It's horrendous. It's wrong. It's a tragedy. But we do need to take a hard look in the mirror and ask ourselves as the survivors of the, you know, uh, that continue to live on past this tragedy, what environments are we creating, are we contributing to that allow these sorts of things to happen? This is where the gun control people come in because it's the most obvious, you know, sorts of things. So we need to put, make it harder to get these things. And that's true uh, to a point. Like, I, I do think that that needs to be part of the conversation. But 
to me, there's actually much larger failures beyond access to wet firearms because, you know, that's that's one piece of the puzzle. But fundamentally, the things that are stacking up on these people that ultimately become mass shooters, they hurt millions of other people. Those people don't become mass shooters, so they don't get focused on, uh, and they don't often get talked about. But if, if if we really want to stop this, we need to look at all of these things, look at our culture, look at our economic arrangements, look at how we do medicine, look at how we distribute firearms, look at how we address the mental health. And we need to ask ourselves if we could do those in a way that hurts less people, that results in better outcomes for everyone, because those are things that we should be addressing anyway. <laughs> and they have the added benefit of providing yet just a little bit more resistance to people reaching this kind of mental state. I agree 100%. And let's get into it um, with firearm regulation too. I This is something I definitely have a lot of strong opinions on. And I'm pro demilitar demilitarization of the United States. I'll say it in that way. Um, is this is where I want to get, I want to try to not get too in the weeds here, but I have a fundamental disagreement with everyone on every end of the firearms debate, largely because everybody on every end of the firearms debate is uneducated in firearms. This is something that the firearms community is extremely agreed upon whether you're far right far left or you just want to sell guns everybody agrees that like no politicians don't know what the fuck they're talking about with guns and i'm gonna make a quick assertion here and then i'm gonna i want to dive into what i see the problem as my assertion is that there is not a single elected leader who is in any way serious about their stance on firearms if they were they would become as educated on firearms as they are on the other matters that they heavily uh, write legislation for, specifically usually econ uh, 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 finance and economics. Almost every legislator gives a big shit about money. They are incredibly knowledgeable about money and how our economic system works, and they benefit from that by making more money. But None of them have the absolute mildest inkling about how firearms work. And now this is not me saying that, hey, if you're out there saying we need to ban guns you're and you don't know about firearms, you need to be quiet. No, 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 no. I don't think everybody can be knowledgeable about everything. I don't think that's an expected thing. I do think if you are an elected leader, if you are elected to office and you're saying, I want to pass firearm legislation, your first primary responsibility is to understand what you want to do. And I say that because I want y'all to fucking do it and accomplish it, not in like, and I don't mean that as in I want more of gun laws of what are available, um, because I think those are just weaponized by the state. But I do want the demilitarization of the United States. Um, so I'm going to make a parallel here between the United States and the balkanized areas of Eastern Europe and of Central Asia. In both of those 
areas are heavily impacted by the fall of the Soviet Union and the massive influx of weapons and proliferation of weapons that happen in those areas, both because of the fall of the Soviet Union, also because of our own injection of weapons that happened during every single conflict in those areas, like the Iraq-Iran War, the, the Gulf War, the Iraq War, the Afghan, the, the whatever, you know, uh, uh, war on terrorism bullshit we did for 20 years. All of that shit has caused a mass proliferation of firearms in those areas. It's also caused a constant er uh, system of conflict in those areas. One of the fundamental things we know about geopolitics in those areas is that everything is really fucking hard to solve there because everybody has unlimited access to firearms because it's been just so heavily saturated in that area. And we live in the exact same environment in the United States. It is true. One of the fundamental problems of this is that if somebody chooses to go commit mass acts of violence, whether that be through a militia group, uh, wanting to hunt down a minority group and commit genocide against them, or whether that be mass shooters, uh, in these individual mass shooter attacks, whether that be an incel wanting to take down a bunch of people on a train, no matter who it is, they have this mass access to weapons because of the proliferation of firearms that we have in the United States. So yes, this is a problem. We have to solve this problem. Now, it's a billion dollar industry that is supported by private firearm sales but it's also supported by state firearm sales to police forces, state police forces, and federal police forces. Billions of dollars of arms that are funneled into our community, military arms a lot of the times, fully automatic arms that are funneled into our direct small town communities and urban communities and suburban communities and downtown communities. Every single community is just has a influx of weapons that come from the Democratic Party and the Republican Party because everybody in our political sphere wants to fund police as heavily as they can. So you have that that's happening, and all of those firearms are made by the same firearm industry that is selling the local fascist group as many AR-15s as they can shuttle under their house into uh, waterproof boxes. It's the same people making the same money. It's the same industry. So when you talk about ending fire, the, the proliferation of firearms in the United States, when you talk about wanting to uh, pass firearm regulation, this is the, you know, like the, the idea of background checks and uh, even something, even something as extreme as firearm buybacks, you're looking at an absolute tippy top of an iceberg in this massive thing that is firearms in America. And this is one of the reasons why, like, you know, from a realistic standpoint, my standpoint is that I think leftist uh, folks who are comfortable with firearms need to become knowledgeable with firearms and trained with firearms and, uh, you know, all, you know, and not leave that on the table for only the worst people in our community who want to do the worst harm to our community. Um, that being said, of course, the end result, the thing we have to ever accomplish to have peace in the United States or peace anywhere in the world is to end the mass militarization of the world. We have to end that here, and I'm 100% for that. But most firearm laws that are being presented by 
elected lawmakers are laws that are either in no like and I'm I'm pro background checks. That makes obvious sense. Almost every single mass shooter that we've seen in the past 20 years would have passed a background check, but I'm pro for them. They make really good sense. But other things like firearm registrations, for instance, also almost every mass shooter would have passed a firearm registration because these are people with a clean background who are legally buying their firearm. And if it was registered, they would have bought it the same way registered. They never intended to survive this attack uh, or not be arrested at the end of this attack. So that wasn't a problem for them. What a registered firearm does, what a firearm registry does do is ensure that a poor and working class individual who is uh, at high risk uh, or potential to be abused by somebody else chooses to carry a firearm, they are also at a higher risk of being uh, stopped by the police and ending up with prison time because of that firearm registry. It, it, it directly affects black and brown folks. It, it is almost, firearm registrations are almost exclusively used to extend the prison times of black and brown folks in black and brown communities. They don't stop these mass shooters. Um, so yeah, that is, in a nutshell, my take on firearm regulation. Yeah, and as someone who, you know, doesn't have a great deal of uh, education around firearms, you know, um, that tracks with my understanding of, you know, what should be done. Um, like, I, I have long recognized, like, the completely um, uh, ill-defined category of, like, assault weapons and how, like, meaningless <laughs> that thing is and like uh i get really tired of people uh, particularly like liberals on facebook being like you know like we need an assault weapons ban it's like you don't know what that even means like and i mean i'm not even actually and i'll actually almost kind of disagree with you here i'm totally okay, cool with sure. calling them i'll i'm totally cool with calling them an assault rifle before it became this politicized thing it was like i remember as a kid we always called ak-47s and ar-15s assault rifles I'm fine with that. Now, I do think it's a legislative issue. If you're going to make a law, you've got to be more descriptive and you have to – this is, again, where it's important to know things. If you want to write laws, you have to know more than the layman about things, about firearms. That being said, a beef I have with Democrats is that they want to call it an assault rifle until they're selling it to police and then it becomes a patrol carbine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, uh, this this quickly reaches the limits of, you know, like what I personally know about this kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I think like, I don't know. When I think about this, the thing I keep walking away from is specifically that like firearm regulations are something that should probably happen. There's good examples and, um, you know, reason to believe in um the ways that that can be done in different places that has seen success uh you know australia is often one that gets pointed to and you know i don't know 
exactly what your take on their particular policy is or whatever but like point being is less about like whether australia specifically is good and more like that like firearm regulation can be done to good effect it can be i do firmly believe that we have a different situation here than most almost everywhere else because we've created this bizarre fucking culture around firearms and we have mass proliferated them on a degree that no other country has and part of that is again uh, that's partly because of our private industry which i do agree like yeah we need to limit and cap our private industry of firearms um i'm you know i'm like you know i'll I'll say something that'll probably get me in trouble on the uh, uh handy with handguns podcast but i have absolutely no problem with ending the manufacture of all private firearms and just saying what's what exists in the market exists in the market. Nobody gets anything new. Now that's not realistic. That's never going to happen. Um, which is also an argument I have with virtually all of this thing. I think it's almost moot to discuss and it's just gets maybe into some other spicy water because I think, you know, we have the filibuster in place. We don't like the, the Republicans are probably going to sweep the midterms. Um, we, are outnumbered by Republicans because Christian Cinema and uh, What's-His-Face are also Republicans. Um, we have no political willpower to do anything about this. So when we say, well, we need policy and change, not uh, thoughts and prayers, well, the policy and change is as much thoughts and prayers as the thoughts and prayers are. I mean, I don't see yeah. I don't see any framework or any roadway or any pathway to do any of the things that we say we want done. Largely, again, because none of these elected leaders are like understanding like they don't have a knowledge of firearms like even the proposed firearm regulations that they have are so shot full of holes that i don't think they would be effective partly i don't think that would be effective because none of them account for the mass proliferation of firearms among police communities in the united states and that those firearms make their way into the rest of the communities if for nothing if for no in other no other way than because it's private individuals who are ending up with those firearms because they are cops but also when you take into account like on handy with handguns i did an episode where we talked about how many firearms the lapd has lost over the years and it's a lot those like you know no accounting for those firearms they were probably sold by police officers to the public in my opinion purely opinion uh don't don't throw legal action at me for that but uh there's no evidence to that i will say there's no evidence but i mean where the fuck did all these guns go? I'm uh, sorry, I'm I'm spiraling there, but I mean, no, you're good. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think I think we agree on on the central point that like it, like if the people who who walk into this you know arena and just like basically say like regulation is impossible and shouldn't be done, like obviously we can't just carbon copy any country's policy and just expect it to work no changes um it's a, it is a different culture it is a different group of people like that said um it's, you know it, it isn't it isn't a thing i have yet to see an argument that convinces me i'll say that it's a avenue fraught uh from the beginning with a fundamental problem that will never succeed yeah, no, and I, I agree with you. I do want to sound like I don't want to sound like I'm saying, oh, it's impossible, nobody will ever succeed, don't try. Because I think that is that's an argument from feds. <laughs> Somebody tells you it's impossible, don't try. Don't listen to them, kids. They're a fed. But um 
Like, yeah, don't definitely, we have to try. And this is like, my whole point is like, no, we have to become knowledgeable in order to actually do this thing. Um, it is a massive, my point is just, I want to point out that it's such a massive problem because, or a, ma a massive like size of issue because I, you know, I think by under underestimating it, we doom ourselves. And I think most people see fire, well, because they exist from outside the firearms community, they see it as a much easier to address problem than it is. Um, like, I mean, like I, and I mean, and I don't mean this is a diss against you, but like the comparison to Australia, like the, the massive firearms in those two, it, well, okay. And actually here. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, like I, 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 I understand that. Like, I don't, I'm not going to take that personally. Like I reckon, I, I knew that was the, that was a big <laughs> thing when I said it, like, like that's the example that people talk about a lot because they had such a, a big success story when it comes to regulating their thing but yeah i i completely agree that like it's a different a different animal <laughs> yeah i mean like i think a lot of people don't intellectually or functionally like like fully understand the lifespan of a firearm like uh right now in the ukrainian war we're seeing Mosin nagants being used by foot soldiers that were produced in the 1930s like firearms have this massive potential lifespan that this is part of the reason why like one one of the reasons why i think it's super critical that we they do something about this as quickly as possible so that we at least put a cap on that flow <laughs> of that is just drowning our communities in firearms but and then we can turn around and be like, all right, now shit, what do we do about all the ones? You know, it's like if your basement is flooding, if you just run down there with a bucket and start throwing it into the first floor, you're not going to do anything. You got to stop the water coming into your basement, and then you got to figure out where you're going to put the water. And, you know, it's it's those kind of steps. Right. <laughs> yeah, precisely. And I, I completely agree with that. Like, and fundamentally, like, I, I like, I, I always hate the firearms debate, not not just because uh, like the firearms regulation debate, not just because um, it's not an area that I'm super informed in and it's not an area that I feel highly motivated to become informed in. It's just like, um, I got a lot on my plate. Don't yeah, have, nobody you know, can like, know course, everything. No, exactly. So like uh, the thing that I hate the most about it really is that like, to me, it's kind of like, um, I don't know how to, what's the best analogy here. It's like, um, it's like looking at cancer and then having a debate about like, whether or not, like we need to use, you know, a big knife or a small knife or like a sharper knife or like, what tool do we use to cut out the cancer? And you're like, we could cure cancer. <laughs> we could, we could we could look into that too. Like we could solve the problem at its roots because like, I just don't think that like, that like uh, the, the things that result in this sort of thing happening are just features of, of nature. And that the only thing we can do is put some laws over the top of them and hope that it stops it. Like, people don't just become mass shooters it's not like written on your on your dna like and so like the thing that frustrates me about the about the thing is like it's an easy solution in some sense to argue about because um 
it, it's um, it's clear. The parameters are clear. The solutions are obvious, you know, in, in some sort of simple way. Like we just need like put more rules on being able to get these things or not be able to get these things at all. Like they're all very easy in terms of, um, you know, coming up with solutions that you could put into a bill. It's a lot harder to be like, uh, how do we foster uh, inclusive and welcoming and supportive communities? That's a really fucking hard question to answer. It's way fucking harder than how do we uh, regulate firearms purchases. And I think people want a simple, quick answer to this when the real answer is you have to cure the cancer. You have to get rid of the environmental causes of these shooters. And if you don't do that, you what you have is a tourniquet. <laughs> I, I see firearms regulation largely as a tourniquet, I guess. Like it's a thing that can be effective and you should use them in certain cases. But I also don't think that like, it's really the, like, if you're going into medicine and looking to solve all your problems with having all the best tourniquets, you're going to be fundamentally constrained in solving certain kinds of problems. And that's, that's kind of how I feel about the, the, you know, mass shooting and, and gun regulation is like, yeah, I mean, like, if we can get, if we have the political will to get it passed, like, go for it. I'm not against it. But like, really if you want this to stop you're going to need to give people mental health care for free at the point of consumption like we need to have a, a nationalized health care program that provides this for the people so that people don't get into this state and when they get begin to approach the state they have free access to therapy and then once we have that we need to foster a culture where going to therapy does not have a stigma to make it seem like you're a bad person and there's something wrong with you and you know for for needing mental help you know that that to me is like is at the heart of it it's just like it's it's not really solving the problem it it provides a cutoff for the immediate most horrible thing but it leaves the actual problem in place in a way that still hurts millions of people but at least prevents uh people from having to actually think through a hard question yeah no 100 percent. i agree with you and i think um you know like an element of this is we invest so little time community energy money 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 and all of those things and instead we invest all of it into policing in a massive police state a growing police state the city where this last shooting happened like they had put 40 percent of their city budget for the past year into the police department we invest all of our money in one specific tool and we invest it into a hammer and then, therefore, every problem must be a nail, so we have to pass a new law to solve every problem so that we can hit it with our hammer. And it it doesn't work. It just doesn't. Like, that doesn't solve the problem. It's a, it is a tourniquet on the problem. And, yeah, I know, I don't think this is a problem you're going to solve with laws. It's a problem you have to solve with fixing our whole 
fucking thing. Yeah, and I get why people shy away from that conversation because, like, you just looking at, like, you, you have the, I mean, like, I have this reaction too. Like, the thing that happened is, like, like, as a father of two kids, like, even beginning to approach imagining what that would be like to go through almost, like, sends me into an emotional fit of tears. Like, I'm terrified of that prospect, even beginning to approach my actual life. I don't know how I would mentally make it through if anything like that happened to my kid. Like, and, and that fear makes me want something that can be done right now. Like, but I have to temper that with the reality that I also don't want to fail to recognize the passive and slow violence that our society inflicts on millions of people every day constantly and treat that as if it's some as if it's not the same as what happens it, at the elementary school millions of kids are regularly subjected to slow horrendous forms of violence in the form of food insecurity and uh you know uh failure uh medical uh, lack of medical proper medical attention because of privatized health care these these forms of violence are not different than them being shot they result yeah. in the same dead kids and, and a, a lot of times they, don't yeah go ahead a, a lot of times they involve the shooting of kids by police officers who have been placed into schools to deal with school problems with a police officer instead of a counselor. Yeah. Sorry. I'm No, yeah. you're good. It's it's such a hard thing to to draw because you know, on the one hand, it can come across like you know, I'm saying that, you know, it's not important to fix the immediate problem because, because I do think that, and I don't want to trivialize the very real and very possible immediate kind of solutions that could be done to make this happen. If not, no more, at least significantly less. Uh, but at the same time, I see every single day, even when there isn't a school shooting in the current public consciousness, the many ways in which adults, kids, people of all ages and colors and backgrounds, uh, although not every economic class, you know, finds themselves the victims of a slow and brutal violence that Ha that ha has been positioned in our culture and our media in a way that makes it not count as real violence. And yeah. I, I, we can't, we can't do that either because that's morally reprehensible in a different way. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And that makes, yeah, this is all a hard discussion to have. I'm also 
as a future father. Also, like, yeah, no, every element of this terrifies me. I'm about to bring a kid into the world. I'm about to go through, you know, he's going to go through elementary and high school and college and all of the places where this shit keeps happening, and I don't see a way that it's better in the next six and eight and 12 and 18 years that he's got to go through it. I I don't, and it, yeah. Yeah, it's scary. And so, like, I, I say that to say, you know, I understand, <laughs> truly, I really do understand where people are coming from when they see this kind of thing and are scared of, yeah, and want something to be done right now because I feel it. And I also want something to be done right now. And frankly, if something could be done right now, if there was like, if, if we were in an Australia-like moment where everyone looked at this and went, no, this has to stop here and now and we need some change and everyone was screaming at the politicians and no one no one who disagreed uh wasn't immediately you know lambasted as um some kind of you know pariah then i would be all for it i'm not against gun control but um you know as much as I don't want my kid to be the victim of a school shooting, I also don't want my kid to be the victim of, of dying from a preventable illness. Yeah. Well, um, I think that's all of the time we have today. Our clock is about to run out because I haven't upgraded my zoom yet. Um, thank you all have a wonderful morning, afternoon, evening, or whatever time of day it is. Uh, and, uh, hug somebody. Yeah. <laughs>